Hello, and today I am joined by Professor at University of Kent, John Dickinson. John, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. No problem. No problem. I appreciate you giving your, your time up. What, what have you been up to today? Uh, well, it's been a bit of a mix of uh, teaching practical classes uh, with, with our sports science students. I've been running a few uh, conversations with athletes around sort of the breathing problems that I help them overcome. And, um, and actually uh, sort of having some conversations about doing outreach with schools. So a bit of everything really today. So I've been a bit mixed. Right. So is there a lot of engagement with, with, with schools then with, with your work? Yeah, I mean, one of the aspects of working at the University of Kent, um, obviously, we want to try and communicate what we find in our research to you know people that maybe wouldn't come in touch with it, but also to inspire kids that maybe are interested in doing sport. So uh, I, I spend quite a bit of my time actually sort of talking to kid, uh, students doing things like GCSEs or A-levels or BTECs. And, you know, obviously a lot of them who do sport are quite keen to be a sports person, but obviously we can't all be a professional elite athlete. And so one of the maybe uh, other options is for them to actually be involved in elite sport, but maybe be a practitioner. So that could be doing something that I do, be a nutritionist, be a biomechanist. So we we kind of talk to, to students about what we do at university, what sort of research we do, how that maybe helps um, athletes overcome various problems. And then hopefully inspires them to maybe think about having a career that might be maybe doing a sports science degree or a sports therapy degree or something similar. That's really good because again, I did sports science and that you don't really know what you're going into. I like sport and I wanted to go to university, so it was like one of those things. Really, was there probably wasn't much thought other than that. But it, and not that I regret it in any way, but it'd be good to have a bit more context of what you could go into and different applications of things. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, that's that's pretty much why, why you know, what, what, and I'm sure we we'll get into it in a bit, but that's what pretty much why I chose to do a sports science degree. Good at good at a lot, good at various number of sports, but never 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 elite at any. And then quite like science, and it was kind of like, well, let's go and do a sports science degree, and we'll worry about we'll worry about what we do later, sort of thing. And that's kind of where you know where where sort of like you know where it all started really. Yeah. Oh no. Well, that that'd be interesting. So going back to that then. So where are you from originally? Um, well, originally uh, born in Chester, grew up in uh, Ellesmere Port, sort of at the bottom of the Wirral. Um, so I went to school um, at a place called Stanley High, um, which I don't think exists anymore. But um, I went to, went to, went to uh, that school uh, and then sort of did my GCSEs at A-levels there. Um, and then uh, went over to university in Bangor in North Wales. So and ever since then, I've sort of moved around the country quite a bit. And then, so, so what was that prompt? Did you touch on it briefly there about like in sport, wanting to get into science, but how early on did you realise that this, well, I guess thinking of doing what you're doing now is quite a, you're a real expert in your field. So like what, what was the vision at that point, if there was one? Um, at the point of going to university, it was more, I don't want to go to university, I want to do sports science. And at the time, I probably still, I was still trying to try and do the best I could do at the sports I was doing. So I was just maybe maybe focused on trying to learn a little bit, little things I could take into my own sport, really. And then um, I never really thought about doing a PhD whilst I was doing my undergraduate. I just I just sort of fully engaged in what, what you know, the classes that I was doing. So, you know, I was just trying to do the best I could do in the classes and especially the ones that, you know, you start to, you start to get a feel for what subjects start to interest you more and probably more the physiological ones were more interesting to me than the psychological ones and so I started to to do things around that that, that area but I you know I, I I do a lot of work with kind of breathing problems in athletes but certainly when I was doing my undergraduate degree that was not part of my kind of like thought process of going you know I'm doing this to be able to 
be able to become an expert in breathing problems and athletes. That was you now breathing problems and athletes weren't understood when I was at university. So it wasn't certainly wasn't kind of on, on the top of my radar to get into. Mm. And then so how academic were you then when you were at school and in well, PMA levels? Um, I, I, I probably did all right in the exams. So, I mean, sort of I was I was never a straight A student, but I was, you know, pretty, did perform pretty well. I've got from my, my son's going through his GCSEs now. So I was, I was trying to encourage, trying to trying to say you got to beat your dad. But um, I was, so what I was doing a couple of bit uh, sort of B, B, A, sort of bits, a bit of a mix of B and A's in a GCSE. And then I think I got a AAB at, at A level. So, I was, you know, sort of decent. I was never sort of like top, 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 top of the class, but no, somewhere, somewhere that was a competent student. And I probably, you know, I wouldn't say I sort of spent every hour living out of day. I mean, I probably made sure that I was playing sport more than I was doing my homework. Um, but you know, but I think having that healthy mix between, you know, do, doing doing some doing some sport breaks up your revision time and that sort of stuff. So I think it's you know, um, I think that's what I try and get my kids to do. You know, make sure you, you know, if you spend all day behind the desk. It's probably not the best thing in the world for you. Mm. And like, what were the sports that you played? Um, I did a bit of did a bit of everything. So sort of basketball, football, tennis were kind of my main three. I played played golf as well, um, and that's what I do more now of because. I've got a bit older, can't move as well. <laughs> so it's the golf course for me. Who do you support out of interest football-wise? Uh, uh, Liverpool's my team. Um, yeah, well, so, I thought it might have been. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on Klopp? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, he's been brilliant for us. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I mean I've, I've got a season ticket there, so I still go try and go quite a lot to the games. But, um, uh, yeah, but I think he's been been a revelation for us, really. And, you know, I think he's, he's, he's last few years, he sort of mentioned he's, he's you know, at some point he's going to not going to be here. Obviously, whenever it's going to come, it's it's a bit like an Alex Ferguson moment, isn't it? You kind of go, you know, or when you know, Bill Shankly kind of left Liverpool, it's like, oh, what do we do now, sort of thing. But um, you know, hopefully that everything's in place for the next person to come in, and uh, you know, sort of pick 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 it up where he's left off, and, and and hopefully there's not too much of a dip. But I think you know, if we don't have a dip, it'd be some, you know, it'd be quite amazing, really. So whoever, whoever comes in, um, it's got a bit of a challenge on their hands. But I think the squad's in a decent place. It's not like when Ferguson left United, where the sort of squads got to, you know, almost like, fin- you know, it's sort of the end of the squad's kind of uh, generation. Whereas, like, I think the the squad we've got at the minute is quite young and up and coming, if you like. So it should be quite exciting for whoever comes in, I think. Yeah, definitely. I'm an Everton fan. And even, oh, okay. even me, like, I wouldn't have... 20, 30 years ago, I would have obviously would have, would have been delighted. But even as a, a neutral, if you can call myself a neutral, like he was so such an impressive guy, isn't he? Like he just is. You would love to have him as your manager for any team. Oh yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he, he, I think he, like even your manager, even your manager at work, because I think what he does is he doesn't. He's not a. He's not a sort of dictator. He's very much a sort of a group. You can see kind of it helps people grow and it's more about the person rather than the actual task that they're doing sort of thing. And and I think when you actually kind of, whatever you're doing, if you've got that kind of mindset about making, you know, kind of making sure whatever the person's doing is right for them and working on that kind of growth of the person, you're going to probably get the best performances out of people. Whereas if you just worry about, you know, why don't you sprint for that ball, then you're probably going to, um, you know, probably going to be sort of making, you know, making, making problems for yourself that aren't there. So I think he's a very good sort of man-to-man or person-to-person sort of um, sort of manager that you know, everyone, I would, I'd imagine 99% of people love. I'm sure there's some people, some people that don't get on with him, but I thought most people do. Yeah, no, no, I think it's a really interesting point talking about like the person first and foremost. And like, so in terms of like your work, it's very academic. Well, then how does that translate into your world? 
Um, well, I mean, I, mean, I think I've, I've probably spanned quite a bit, quite a bit across various things because, I mean, as a researcher, you, you're taught to be pretty neutral, pretty clinical. You know, you, you're trying to get people into do your research projects. You look at the data, you analyse the data, and then you come up with your conclusions. But then at the other end of the spectrum, I'm, I'm also an applied practitioner, so I will go and work with athletes. And, you know, a lot of the time I'll go and, you know, I might go and screen a, a football team, for example, and we do some tests for asthma, for example, and we know athletes are more likely to have asthma or asthma-like asthma-like conditions than the general population so when we've been into football teams in the past we've had about one in four players it was a have an asthmatic issue and some of those players might not realize they have it so you've got to you know say if you're a footballer coming for a test and i've just rocked up on that day they come and do the test they give us a positive test which actually suggests they've got asthma and haven't realized it you've got to be quite careful the way you deliver that because you know, these football players are quite good at what they do. Some of them are international, some of them won World Cups. And if you're turning around to them and going, oh, by the way, you've got a breathing problem, they're going to look at you a little bit, a little bit kind of kind of odd. And so the way you kind of kind of be able to kind of generate that kind of one-to-one relationship is really, really key because not just with the player, but also with the, 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 the medical team around that, because they've got to then support that player. And so to kind of get a good relationship between yourself, the medical team that you're working with and the players really important because they've got to trust you and you've got to uh, obviously trust them in, 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 in what you're doing. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it is key. And I think over the years, I've probably learned, learned that sort of thing. You know, I didn't have those sort of skills automatically. I mean, when I first started doing testing with Elite Athlete, I was pretty much, well, test says you've got asthma. You're going to need an inhaler deal with it <laughs> sort of thing and, and you know then over time you kind of realize maybe that isn't maybe the best way of delivering that information because obviously you've got all the other stuff that you don't realize the athletes kind of carrying all that baggage and then you start to understand kind of actually maybe there's better ways to deliver that kind of information over time mm-hmm. and do you get any support in terms of training for that um i haven't personally and i think maybe that is an area that you know i think it's really difficult to teach and I think sometimes you you got to accept some of those skills are just you you sort of learn out by just exposure to those environments and and I think I think sometimes we can be quite harsh on new new people to come into the environment new and they maybe struggle a little bit initially to kind of try and make those links because um, you know for one reason or other the environment might not be the right for them or they might you know they might be a bit too too front you know too, too forward with what their opinions are. Um, and so I think you kind of learn to, to you know, just being in that environment, you learn over time. But sometimes, you know, if you're working in an elite environment, maybe there isn't the time to to give people that, that those experiences. But I think the more you make people aware of what that type of environment is like, how to behave initially, is it is is, is it gives them a start. But I don't think you can, I think you know, you can get trained to a point in those one-to-one relationships. But ultimately, I think the the only way you can develop your skills in it is by actually going out there and chat you know delivering something um and developing and developing ways to create relationships so i think it's i think it's quite difficult to teach it yeah it can be a little bit forced sometimes if you're trying to follow a script or ask an open question or whatever it is mm-hmm. so yeah no no i agree so when you were at university then what, what was the was there any particular plan when you were at bangor and planning what you were going to do for your career like midway through your degree um again not not necessarily. I mean, I, I say I've got quite involved with the football team there. Started doing some coaching, and, and I guess probably when I was at, when I was at the university, maybe I thought coaching might be where I go down. Sort of, you know, I was quite a keen football player, coaching coaching the first team as well. 
I was doing sort of summer camps, going over to America to coach football over there. So I was thinking that you know, this is quite, quite, quite enjoyable. Um, so that's probably what my main, my, my initial main thought was. I'll, I'll go down the coaching, the coaching road, and then I think probably when I started doing my dissertation in the third year, that started to get me switched on a little bit more to research and kind of, you know, in, in, interest in research and kind of where research can take you and how research you, you know, you can as much as sometimes elite sport is kind of ahead of the research and then we need the research to prove what the elite sport are doing is is maybe the right thing to improve performance um but it, it got me interested in that area and that's probably when i when i left the banger i was probably actually more thinking about well maybe i'll go maybe i'll look at kind of a, a research career obviously when i left there was you know, you got options there you can either you know this is sort of like early 2000s so 2002 is when i graduated and it was, you know, you could, could stay on to do a master's there, could go and do a master's somewhere else. Um, but I probably didn't have the money to sort of fund myself through a master's. So I started looking almost, I, I managed to get a first class degree at, at Bangor. Um, and so I, I, I was, um, I was thinking, well, maybe if I can get a funded PhD position, I can just sort of go straight into that. And so I started and back then, like now at the moment, PhDs are advertised online like, job, like jobs back then PhDs weren't so you basically had to find people in universities email them with your CV and say I'm thinking of this area is my CV have you got any PhD opportunities and so it's very much kind of like being proactive um, and initially I actually went up to Edinburgh um, Harriet Watt and I got an interview up there and got offered an opportunity to do a PhD up in Harriet Watt but the PhD was on sort of um, submaximal testing to predict ma uh, maximal exercise in elderly people. And I was like, it's great I've been offered a PhD, but just I thought I've got to do three years of this. And I just couldn't see myself doing three years of kind of looking at submaximal testing in elderly people. So I said, so I said thanks and no thanks. And at the time, I didn't have any other plan. And then but through my coaching, I was receiving FA magazines um, and I got a um as an, as an article in there about power breathe and how football teams are using power breathe and power breathe is like an inspiration muscle trainer makes you basically develops your um sort of respiratory muscles um and there was the they were talking to the lady that it was part of the the, the the basically was part of the basically part of the the team that invented it and so i emailed alison mcconnell who was working at brunel and said really interesting article in the fa magazine um it look, uh, really interesting concept around looking at breathing spiritual muscles and football performance um and then she sort of said you know i'm interested in doing a phd have you got anything that you've just sort of started or got anything opportunity and she actually emailed me back within a week and said oh we've got this opportunity to work at the british olympic medical center um looking at asthma in in the olympic team do you want to come for an interview <laughs> so, so um next week i went along for an interview um and yeah and then got offered the opportunity to to basically the remit of that of that PhD was basically to test athletes for asthma in the build-up to the Athens Olympic Games. So without, and again, this is kind of like whether I go, is it luck? Is it just right place, right time? Is it because I was proactive? Whatever it is, within six months of under, uh, finishing my undergraduate degree, I was testing Paula Ratcliffe and and um, Matt Pinson for breathing problems. And you're like, you know, <laughs> what's going on here sort of thing. Um, but yeah, but but it was, so it's quite a bit of a quite a bit of a springboard from going undergraduate finish and then you know, messing about for, for six months trying to find something to do. And then, um, yeah, in January 2003, I started 
started my PhD um, at the British Olympic uh, Medical Centre. So it was sort of via Brunel, but I was sort of working at the, the British Olympic Medical Centre, um, which was quite, you know, quite quite interesting. And, and um, yeah, and at, at the time I was um, I was the only person in the country really testing athletes for asthma problems. So having not paid too much attention to my spirometry classes at, at, at Bangor, in, it, we might have done one practical on it. I suddenly had to become an expert in testing lung function via spirometry and then sort of teach myself how to do the tests we need to do to, to basically try and trigger off asthma in, in elite athletes, which was great because, you know, you teach yourself and then obviously within six months I'm the only person in the country doing the testing so all these athletes are sort of coming to me for tests uh, and, and I'm working with the, sort of the, the best sports medics in the country kind of helping athletes get the get the right get the right sort of thing for their for their asthma but um yeah so it's a bit of a bit of a sort of a you know jump into the fire and see if you can survive sort of thing yeah why do you think you got the the, the posting then I, I you, have, you have to talk to Greg <laughs> <laughs> employed me for that, Is that one. Greg Retter? Yeah, Greg White, uh, Professor Greg, Greg White was uh, my, my my supervisor, at the, and he was the head of the uh, head of science at the British Olympic uh, Medical Centre at the time. Um, I don't know. I honestly, I could I couldn't tell you. They probably they might, maybe they took pity on me and went, well, we have got we got we got to get a, you know got to get our northerners in here somewhere. <laughs> got to get a better ge geographical spread of people working at this place. Uh, I don't know, but I. I but I, I mean, I think I think I was quite passionate. So when I went to the interview, obviously I'd been proactive in emails. Um, I'd, I'd read the I read an article that was in, of interest to me. I'd emailed the person that like Alison that um, that was in, involved in that article and sort of put, demonstrate that I was keen in the area that she was she was working in. When I went along to the interview, I actually took my dissertation thesis with me and said and just to sort of demonstrate my um you know so look this, this is my kind of level of research now and sort of showed showed them that i had the research skills to talk with deliver sort of uh, research so they could sort of see that um yeah and then you know, obviously then i can't remember i can't i can't remember any of the questions that they asked me but but um, obviously answered them okay uh, and then say a couple of weeks later i got a call said you know if you want it you're in sort of thing so um yeah and then, then off we went yeah. So what was that like then? You're going in with like the biggest stars prior to the Olympics. Well, um, I, 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 generally speaking, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty calm. I, the only time I've got really nervous is when they've actually gone and tested the whole of the Liverpool team. So, so, that's the only time I've been a bit starstruck. But like, you know, when, you know, I was testing like your, your Matt Pinsons and, 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 and James Cracknells and those sort of people. Uh, and obviously they're they're big names, and obviously you don't you know you want to do a good job, but I, I guess you know you just kind of take it in your stride and and you know and I think I was fortunate at the time because obviously you got I wasn't just there by myself, so what in the in the early stages I would have one of the other physiologists with me, kind of just you know I might be doing my lung function bit whilst they were setting up for a, for a VO2 max test with the athlete, and so we sort of do do the testing as part of one big one big testing sort of event for the athlete and. I think it was good having those experienced people around me because you know they they were pretty calm and chilled out because oh Matt's coming in or oh, oh, he, he'll 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 come in on his bike and the coach will the coach won't be happy because he's ridden his motorbike into the centre of London and you might you might fall off it and that sort of stuff. So you just sort of you know it just relaxes the mood a little bit and then you know you just get on with what what you want to do. So um, yeah, so I think that was that that was quite quite helpful and I say I think the confident yeah you know, I think everyone was pretty laid back as well. There wasn't you know people weren't looking at him sure to say 
saying you, you can't say that to that person or you can't say this to this person they were very much as long as you're doing the job it was pretty much just 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 be you sort of thing and I think that that helped quite a lot in the early stages. So who else was part of that medical team then that you you were working with? Um, so in involved so we had so Greg was sort of in sort of the lead of the science part of it and then we had uh, Steve Ingham um, was there and Charlie Pedler um we had Richard Godfrey um uh Kate and Dave Makutovic uh so it's got sort of that that's the sort of the team that was sort of there as kind of the, the um the physiologists um or well, the, the kind of the sports science team like when Rob Shade was there as well actually and was and then there was a bunch, bunch of physios and then we had sort of med, med, medical team kind of came in so we had Richard Budget was there, it's probably the um, and he's now well, he, he he will be up until Paris. The he's the basically the, the lead doctor, the head of the IOC <laughs> as, far, as far as the medical goes. So some of the people you work with, you could sort of scratch your head going, oh, I used to go on Christmas nights out with Richard, and now he's like in charge of the medical committee at the 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 IOC sort of thing. So yeah, you know, meeting people like that just yeah unbelievable. And then say Greg, Greg was sort of my main and. Having him as a as a mentor was was unbelievable because you know again he was so so just you know letting me kind of let me kind of do my own thing let me kind of grow you know sort of point me in the right sort of direction but you know what was very, wasn't particularly we didn't really dictate what we were doing sort of you know did trust me a lot um, let me kind of you know dictate sort of where the research kind of went and things um, but sort of then would just steer it a little bit um, to kind of kind of get the best out of it so. Um, yeah, so I think the team there were fantastic, really. And I think, you know, I was really fortunate. The actual team were such a great team that you can kind of like grow, grow, grow and build. You know, you kind of, it's a bit of a shame when, when it all, when we, we all kind of sort of start to go our different ways a little bit. But um, that's what, that's what happens. Mm, yeah. And how long were you there for? So I was working at the, the British Olympic Association uh, with, the, with the British, with the, the, it started off as the British Olympic Medical Centre. Then it evolved into the Olympic Medical Institute. And then I actually t stepped over and about halfway through my PhD, went and worked for the English Institute of Sport. So I spent about a year and a half at the Olympic, Med well, Olympic Medical Institute by the time I'd left. And then I stepped over to work at the English Institute of Sport, pretty much doing the same thing. But the English Institute of Sport had different satellite centres. So it was easier to kind of get into the athletes around, around, the, around England rather than them all having to come down to um come down to london for the testing so then i moved so i moved my hub moved from being in uh, harrow over to um where were we um we were in uh, bisham so i was sort of working out of bisham abbey um but then going to the the satellite centers in manchester in loughborough in bath um to test the athletes around around the country and i sort of worked there until uh 2007 so i sort of i'd finished my phd when i was at the as and then and then worked there for about another year um after that um yeah and so yeah worked with pretty much worked across all the olympic sports both winter and summer sports um pretty much you know pretty much every, everyone really um which was you know when you look back at it you go oh like you know sort of you oh you see someone on tv oh i tested them you know and kind of <laughs> it's quite, quite interesting and so was it just timing that you managed to do your phd when all of this sort of technology was kicking off well, what 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 happened was so what what triggered my PhD to be available was the uh, the IOC and WADA at the time basically came and basically joined their anti-doping policies together, and basically what happened when they did that they they changed 
they basically changed the rules a little bit as to base um what athletes what what evidence athlete athletes needed to be able to use asthma therapy in the olympic games so what they what basically what it meant was that every athlete that was using a subuse inhaler so the blue inhalers had to demonstrate they had asthma before they could use it so what it meant was there was a ton of work that needs to be done in the uk that somebody needs to basically go around and test all the athletes for asthma and that was essentially the the, the, so they funded a position to be able to, to do that. And the way Greg funded it was they basically got some funding to do it as a research project rather than simply as a, a deliverer, if, if, if you like. Um, and that's what basically triggered off, tr triggered it off. So initially, and so we did have problems. So one of the th one of the things that we found was we found the British Olympic team, the prevalence of asthma in the 2004 Olympic Games was 21%. So 21 percent of the team had it um, had asthma. The general population's prevalence is 10 percent. So if you're an Olympic athlete, you're twice as likely to to um, to need an, an asthma inhaler than um, if you're not an elite athlete. But what we also found was about 20 percent of the team that were using an inhaler, we had to take off because they couldn't give us evidence of of needing asthma of 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 a of a positive test. So they've been misdiagnosed. Um, and a lot of the time they've been misdiagnosed because they've gone to the doctor and complained of breathlessness during during sport. But um, and so the doctor had simply gone, well, sounds like asthma, have an inhaler, um, which was kind of what was happening at, at the time. But what we found was a lot of these times when athletes just report symptoms, it's not asthma that causes those symptoms. And so that sort of spurred you know, a lot more investigation into, well, hang on a minute, are we starting to... Are we missing athletes? Because the other the other side of it was I had actually tested a few athletes just 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 out of interest or just because they wanted a test, um, and we actually found they had asthma and didn't realise it. And so we, the kind of question was, well, are we missing athletes that might have asthma, and also are athletes who are using inhalers and haven't had a test? Do I, do, do they all need the medication? So we started to kind of like make it more of a a, 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 you know, make it more of a need to actually do respiratory tests on athletes to actually make sure the athletes who need the inhalers are getting the inhalers and, and using the right ones, but also making sure the athletes who maybe have a breathing problem and have been misdiagnosed with asthma are actually getting the right support. Because if it's not asthma that's causing the problem, the inhaler is not going to do anything, and there's actually better ways to treat those people. And so we started that kind, that sort of. That sort of started as a sort of an offshoot of the, the work we did around the 2004 Olympic Games. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting then. So so in terms of like athletes having a more prevalence to, to having asthma, what is, has there been research done on why that is the case? It, it, it's basically down to exposure of, to asthma triggers. So you think about people who live in polluted environments, the prevalence of asthma in those polluted environments is greater than it is in less polluted environments because the, the exposure to asthmatic triggers is greater. And it's the same thing with athletes. And what a, a lot, what we tend to see is the, the sports that take place in, well, the sports that require the athlete to maintain a high level of ventilation have a higher prevalence. The sports that take place in cold environments have a higher prevalence. If you put high ventilation and cold environment together, you get a higher prevalence. You put high ventilation together with polluted environment, you get a higher prevalence. So basically, if you're in a sport that has a, that basically needs you to breathe a lot and takes place in a, in a polluted environment or a cold environment, you're basically giving your, your lungs that basically have to respond to that air more or basically have to deal with that air more. So basically your lungs uh, almost get hypersensitive to the environment. 
and so they're more likely to kind of trigger off an inflammatory response which will then trigger off a, a, a muscle kind of constriction around the airway and basically over time you so, sometimes we might actually see that athletes develop the asthma over time um from exposure to the sport um so we can't be sometimes we argue that actually certain sports might be sort of exercise induced asthma might be an occupational kind of risk to, to to that athlete but what we know what what we know is when we take away the trigger so when an athlete stops doing the sport or stops training in that pollutant environment their severity of the asthma either lowers or it or, or the asthma goes away so in a similar way to for example if you've got asthma and you're allergic to the cat get rid of the cat the asthma goes away so in certain sports we can manipulate the environment or we can manipulate training times but a lot of elite athletes you can't you know they've got to, got to go and compete in a certain arena they've got to go and compete in that arena so we can't change the environment so much with them we can't change what their trigger is so then it's kind of a case of well if we can't change that then we need to make sure we try and protect the athletes air lung function the best we can by getting them on the the right inhalers that mean that mean they use as little inhaler as possible but protect their lung their, their lung health and so by the time they finish the sport their lungs haven't been sort of uh, affected too much and so we're trying to pr sort of promote this kind of you know really positive outlook it's not a problem if someone has asthma we just need to know that they've got asthma to then put them on the right and to get them on the right inhalers and they'll, 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 they'll basically they'll, they'll be able to play and compete as if they haven't got asthma um and what we i've also done loads of research on on the inhalers because a lot of asthma, people think well, if you take a blue inhaler and you haven't got asthma that's going to make you a better athlete isn't it and you go and it's not that's not the case so if you take sort of two puffs of a blue inhaler you, it, basically the way that 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 drug works is it's supposed to dilate your uh, well it dilates your your airway but if you haven't got asthma your airway is already fully dilated so you can't kind of super dilate it so it won't it won't do anything to a non-asthmatic um so basically you know what it's trying to get that sort of positive positiveness about if an, an individual has asthma using an inhaler is is going to be helpful for them because it's going to protect their lung health and if they haven't got asthma and they're using an inhaler it's not going to do anything for them that's pretty much that's pretty much it but it's trying to get that kind of positive spin and um on it um because we find you know you've seen reports in the press where um you know so and so is using an asthma inhaler so they're cheating and you're like that's just such a negative way of looking at it because it, it's not that's not the case plus you know you've got 100,000 people with asthma taking part in sport and if that you know if, if that makes them not want to take their inhaler when they're just about to go and play a football match and then they have an asthma attack when they're playing because they didn't want to be seen as a cheat when that is not a nowhere near the case then that's just not the not the kind of you know, they're not, it's not the right message we want to put out there sort of thing so we're trying to do a lot of education with athletes and with, with sport with sport and organizations to make sure it's a positive kind of kind of vibe around around kind of people with asthma rather than look at the, looking at the, look at them and going oh they're, they're using their inhaler again they're probably trying to cheat and that's not the case yeah no, that's really interesting so my mum's got asthma and you know she's relatively later on in life that she's been using it um but yeah no i wasn't aware of like some of the like you can see why the stigmas may stick and could be really potentially dangerous to people who don't don't use it for those reasons so uh, after EIS, then you said you moved on um, about a year after being at, was it at Bisham? Yep, so Bish at Bisham, and <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> I got fed up of basically being the asthma guy. <laughs> so I was like, I've just, I've done this test over and over and over again. I was like, Phew, I'm just, and then 
Um, so I actually took a well, I, I took a little bit of a career break from being the Asna guy at the EAS because I could have I could have probably stayed there for for quite a while and just kept doing that. But I just got a little bit. I just, there's got to be something more out there. Finish your PhD. You sort of lived lived that will for just only that will for so long. And so an opportunity came up to be a, what's called an acquisitions editor at a publisher called Human Kinetics. So and basically the job was to come up with ideas for sports science textbooks and sports science. So I actually went and worked for Human Kinetics for two and a half years. Um, and so that, and that was that was great because um, part of it was we, we we really relocated to America for three months. So I lived in America for three months. If anyone does sports science, it's kind of Human Kinetics Champaign, Illinois. That's where that's where I lived <laughs> for for, um, for three months, and then came back and we lived in lived in uh, Backley, just on the outskirts of Leeds, um, up there, and that's where the, the office was near near there. So we went, so yeah, worked there for three years, coming up with different ideas for sports science books. But what I was able to do in human kinetics were really good was that they allowed me to work four days a week doing that, and one day a week I kept my hand in doing the asthma testing, and I actually I say um, Leeds Leeds Beckett University were um, uh, allowed me to use their lab so I was running a respiratory clinic out of Leeds, out of Leeds Beckett University on a, on a Monday testing the elite athletes in and around um, in and around Yorkshire um, for, for breathing problems one day a week and doing the the uh, the acquisitions editor job uh, the other four days of a week and that was quite nice I quite enjoyed that because it meant I could still do what I was good what I'd learned and was good at and still making a difference there but I was learning some new skills doing the doing the acquisitions editor um, sort of role um, which was great I uh, really enjoyed the, the book editing stuff. Um, after, just after three years, I ran out of ideas for new, for new books. It was, uh, was was the problem. You kind of you know every, every year they give you targets, right? You need new books, need new books, need new books, and it was getting to the point where they're saying, right, this year we, we want you to get like twenty five new titles. I'm like, I've come, I don't know, I've, I've gone through all of these sort of you know got gone through that 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 that, and now you want twenty five new ones. It's like blooming that. And so you're just thinking at a point, I can't I can't keep can't keep you know kind of creating new stuff that's actually going to sell that's actually going to sell and be any good so um so I, so i did that for three years and then um the my boss at the institute so greg he'd, he'd moved to liverpool john moores and he contacted me um sort of middle of sort of the start of 20, 2009 and sort of said it was if i was interested did i want to apply for a do we want to apply for a, a water grant so world anti-doping association they run research uh oh, oh, have a research competition to bid for money uh, to run research projects that are relevant to the anti-doping and so um basically me and him put a me and greg put together a, a research grant that was looking at the impact of blue inhalers on performance so the so basically look at trying to test whether salbutamol inhalers improve performance if athletes take the maximum amount, amount they're allowed to take in a day and we got that that funding was announced in october 2009 and that sort of paid for me to, to go and work as a, pro, a prof doc at Liverpool John Moores from the start of 2010. Um, and then I was sort of back in the world, then I was sort of in an academic environment then, which is different to a, an applied environment. But I was able to set up the respiratory clinic in Liverpool. I was still doing the one in Leeds and I was still doing this research um, with, 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 with the wider stuff. So I spent about two and a half years. Liverpool John Moores um, doing doing the research um, in, into into asthma medication um, and and testing all the various athletes in up in the northwest and then and, and in Yorkshire for for breathing problems. Uh, but the only, only problem with that sort of work is it was all kind of fixed fixed term stuff. So you're kind of like every year we were looking for more funding and more funding and more funding and 
Um, and so it came came to a point where you start going, well, actually, I probably need a bit more of a stable job. And the uh, opportunity came up to work as a lecturer down in Kent. Um, so I again applied for that and um, decided to to make the move down down to Kent. So it's, yeah, sort of jumping around and then I've been down in Kent now since I started in Kent in 2012. And now what we're 2020 20, 24, so 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> it flies by sort of thing. No, it does fly by. So you go back to that publishing role. And so how do you come up with a book idea? Well, you've got, so you, you, it might be, I come up with the idea of the book. So I go, actually, you know, we need, you know, we haven't, for example, I came, uh, I started to develop and um, I'm trying to think some of the books I came up with now. Um, so we did, we did, we, we did a book on tapering, for example. So tapering for sport. And it was, um, that we, um, for that, that particular book, the, uh, the author emailed me with a pitch said, and it was Inigo Mujica, who's, who's a big name in sort of the world of research of tapering. He emailed me with a pitch about two, two page, two page pitch of a book idea. And then I basically I, I would read it and go, that's a good idea or that's not a good idea. And if it's a good idea, I might go back to the author and go, well, actually, if we could tweak it, if we could do this, this and this and this, that might actually work. Um, so I helped the author kind of reorganize the table of contents to organize what, what they're going to what sort of special bits are going to be in the book. And then and then I kind of work with the, the team at Human Kinetics to actually kind of, well, what's the market for this? So you kind of go, who's going to buy it? And then you have to kind of make estimates going, well, you know, X number of sales there, X number of sales there. Someone like Human Kinetics has got a history of selling books in sports in the sports science market. So they have a feel for this type of book will sell X amount of um sort of sales in that market, X amount of sales in that market. So you put all your costs in, you work out how much it's going to cost to publish the book in terms of um pages, how many, how many, how much colour you're going to use, and all this sort of stuff. And then basically it churns out how profitable that book might be. Um, and if you're getting, the, you know, sort of a publisher's probably looking for a book. And again, it depends on the type of book. So if you're going to sell millions of copies, they're probably going to they're probably going to be happy with a, a bit of a smaller, smaller profit margin in a publishing company that's quite small. They're probably looking for a bigger profit margin. So they're probably looking for a profit margin of over at least 40 to 60 percent, probably a little bit higher on, on some books. So if they can get a profit margin on that. Then then they go, actually, we can publish this if, if it's coming out sort of we're barely going to make any money on this what's the point they'll you know they, they won't go so you have to try and figure out how you're going to publish the book if you're really passionate about it how are you going to publish the book to make it sort of work on work on the um work on the spreadsheet if you like um so that and then you go to a you go to what we had was then a, a what's called an acquisitions meeting i would then pitch the book to a team that would include um editors the C, the ceo or the head of division of the way the book was going it would include um uh, what else would it include marketing team they're quite important because they go if they don't get it they don't they don't get it they ain't gonna publish it because they've got to market it um, and so basically you'd sort of pitch the book everyone would have a chat about the numbers that you put in there and then you'd have a and you'd have a debate and then basically they say yeah we want to publish it and then you're going back to the author then at this point saying yeah we'd love to publish it and then you track then you agree in terms with the author about contracts 10 percent 12 percent 15 percent kind of royalties you know what 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 are they like and it would depend on the book. If it's a textbook, um, we, there was a different kind of policy about how we do all royalties. Whereas if it was a trade book, more of a sort of a one for to sell in a supermarket, then it would be a different, different sort of level of royalty sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's a totally different set of skills. But it's again, it's sort of like make you a bit business savvy, make make you a bit more understanding the profit margins and things like that. You know, when you're trying to book, especially when you're university and you're trying to pitch new ideas, you can really 
you know, those sort of skills I've had from working in the business world, it's sort of you start to you know think about it's not just about doing something because it's good. It's got to be doing something and making sure that you're not going to, you know, make the university go bankrupt or anything like that. So, yeah. Um, no, it's yeah. really interesting. It is. I mean, I think that all that commercial aspect of things is that we literally everyone is doing some sort of sales, aren't they? Whatever, whatever they're doing. So being able to to translate and communicate with people. So what was it like as well working for an American company, both like when you were on site there, but like I'm sure because they're like the king of sales, aren't they? Yeah, well, it's, 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 totally, it's really weird, you know, just just certain things, you know, that, that first of all, they start way earlier than we do. You know, they're, they're on their emails, some of them from four or five o'clock in the morning, and they just they're just up early um, and they go to, you know, they're in bed by nine o'clock, but they're up early. They're like they're like an early start. Um, but no, it's great. I mean, because it was a sports science publisher, it was actually quite a good again, it's quite a good, good company. And again, you talked about kind of the start of talking about kind of people that kind of have that kind of growth mindset they you know it's actually the actual company itself was started by a sports psychologist and um, so it, ha- it, was, it had sports psychology and, and sports science in its essence and said so all the philosophy was about kind of coaching philosophy and growth mentality and that sort of thing so Rainer Martin started the company um, in Illinois because he couldn't find a publisher to publish some proceedings from a conference and so he set it up in his garage published them and then published a bit more and published a bit more and suddenly he was he was publishing books so they had this kind of mindset that they were a sports science company rather than a, pu- a book publisher really so you're going in there and you know they had you know things like that on site canteen there but they but you know that they, they, they had fitness classes going on throughout the day you know your fitness class in the morning they, and they were these were all free for staff to, to use and stuff like that so it's brilliant so i got quite fit whilst i was, <laughs> whilst I was out there didn't do so much work but no but it, but it was great um so yeah, but it was quite interesting working for an American company, but then going back to the UK and being kind of so I was sort of in charge of uh, acquiring books for the European market, and sometimes we were having a bit sort of a bit of a culture issues around kind of well what what works in Europe maybe doesn't work in America and vice versa. They were kind of going, why isn't this book that sells loads in America selling in Europe? And you're kind of going, it's basically you know we're saying tomatoes and tomatoes here, but it's but that's important because. They were talking about kinesiology. We don't use that word kinesiology in in the UK. And basically, what they mean is sports science. And so they would have a book called Sports Kinesiology, and then we go and we go that that title's just not going to sell over here. Um, and so we just just those sort of, you know, it's you know, we, you think that we all talk the same language, but <laughs> but we don't. They don't even spell properly. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so I mean that is that is really interesting. It's uh, I think any sort of link into those areas, but certainly like books, it's a it's a massive industry now. Um, so like when you came back here, then and you've worked with various different teams. You mentioned about being starstruck when you were at Liverpool. Like what what are the other particularly memorable things that you've had in your career that you can really go back to? Uh, well, I mean, say Liverpool. I mean, I said going into some of the big teams. So we've gone to screen. We've gone to screen Liverpool. We've gone to screen Arsenal. Um, we've gone into uh, done, done some work with and that the hardest bit was going to Man United and being professional. <laughs> so, but I have there, did it, managed it, went into Everton, did did did, did um, some of the players at Everton. So I've gone through quite a few of the elite, elite football teams. Um, uh, done quite a few of the elite uh, uh, rugby teams. So did Leicester Tigers, London Irish, uh, England Sevens. Did quite a lot um, when um, when we first started doing stuff. Um, and I think some of the most some of the, some of the bits you kind of you know, you're actually you, you know you help players get better. 
So you, you, some of the work we did was, you know, we kind of helped players understand why they might be getting breathless, help them out, and it helps kick them on. And so we did. Um, I remember doing some stuff with some of the rugby players, and and you know, they were kind of good, good club level players. And then once we kind of worked with them and supported them, they were, you know, them them playing for England and things. And you kind of, that, that, you know, it's brilliant. Had had a few examples with with cycling, where some of the uh, where worked with some junior cyclists, um, who were really struggling with their breathing. Um, and again, this is sort of more of this unexplained breathlessness when we worked on breathing pattern and helped them improve their breathing pattern. And then they could do all their training. And then I kind of you kind of forget about them. And then about four years later, you see them at the Olympic Games, and you go, oh, that was good. That was, you know, that's quite because at that point they maybe they maybe weren't going to get go in, into the senior squad because they couldn't do all the training. And the same 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 thing happened with some of the rowing the rowing team as well. So there are quite a few there. I think probably. The, you know, apart from doing the Liverpool lot, probably the, the, the biggest experience I've recently was I um, we went and screened the whole of the England football team before the 2018 World Cup, and that was that was a great experience. That was because when you kind of you know you kind of go in St George's Park, and then you kind of go for all the security, and then once you're in, once you're inside the bubble, it's you know it's basically you know it's a, it's the atmosphere is fantastic, and you know everyone is kind of you know, everyone's doing a professional job. But, you know, there's that respect and the way they set it up was, you know, there's not very, sometimes you go to football clubs and it's like, that's the manager's table, that's the first team's table, that's the reserve team table over there. England, it was pretty much once you're in, once you're in the bubble, everyone's an equal and everyone's, you know, and, you know, so I remember I took one of my master's students with me um, at the time to help me do the testing. And we went in on the second day um, and we had to sort of set up before they had their breakfast. Um, and we sort of walked through the breakfast area and Gareth Southgate was in the area and he kind of came straight over to me, me and the student and sort of shook our hands and said hello, we're now getting on. We explained to him we we're just going to set up um, and he said, oh, make sure you come back to get some breakfast. So we came back in, obviously, <laughs> to get to get some free food. Um, and I sort of sat, I, I sort of left my, we sort of sat down at a table, the whole, it was pretty empty, sat down at a table. I I, sort of, I went off to get myself a cup of tea. By the time I come back, Gareth Southgate had plumped himself down next to my, my, my master's student and we just basically chewing the fat with us for half an hour over breakfast. Well, you know, he's having his eggs Benedict and, we're, you know, we're just you know explaining what we're doing. And he was just probing. And he, he had some of the other coaching staff, some of the players sort of came, came and sat down. And it was just, you know, that's the sort that was a, such a good experience to sort of, sort of go. And then you kind of look at some of, the, some of the things that they had embedded. You can kind of explain why they had such a good World Cup that year and why they did so well at the Euros. Um, and then they've done so well um, at the last at the, the last tournament. So you can sort of see kind of how they've built that, you know, built a very, very comfortable environment for not just the players to perform well, but also the the practitioners to kind of be comfortable performing well as well. And I think that that was that was something that, you know, I was, I was probably one of the most impressive kind of atmospheres that I've been in was that kind of England, that England set up. Yeah, no, that's great. It's nice. It's nice to hear, isn't it? That it's like you actually, you know, top, top names going into a big tournament, but really down to earth as well. Yeah. And then, so in terms of like the breathing, that's on the elite sport end. But how's COVID impacted the work that you're doing? Yeah, so so even before COVID, we were, we were kind of working with people that were maybe kind of like had bad chest infections. But so some of the work, well, some of the more re, some of the research that's kind of come out of the work we did we did with elite athletes was that we found a lot of elite athletes would develop this condition that we call breathing pattern disorder, which is called BPD. Um, and so some of the research that we've done at the University of Kent was to understand what breathing pattern disorder is. And, you know, because if you think about, well, what, what's a good breath? Ask someone what a good breath is and they go, hmm, 
I was born, started breathing and just kept doing it. But the way I, I sort of see breathing now is breathing's a little bit, breathing pattern in terms of the way we move our rib cage is a little bit like the way we walk. You know, we kind of, everyone's got a slightly different walking style, slightly different walking gait. Um, and what sometimes happens is if if that if you get challenged, so say for example you sprain your ankle, you change your walking gait a little bit, and then sometimes when some people when they when their ankle isn't sprained, they they never stop walking as if they got a sprained ankle, so they kind of hold on to the gait that they 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 kind of adopted from from the um, from the injury. Now what happens when you get something like COVID or something like a chest infection? Sometimes people change the way they breathe because of the because of the chest infection because of the COVID. And so what we're seeing kind of post-COVID, some of the reason why people are experiencing long COVID is part of that is potentially down to the fact they've actually changed their breathing, so that breathing pattern after COVID and haven't necessarily let go of it. So they kind of hold their hold their tension up here, sort of breathe a bit higher up. So when they start to do things like, you know, walk upstairs and things like that, they start to get breathless quicker. Um, and so they get, then go to the doctor saying, I'm, I'm breathless, I'm getting early onset fatigue and, you know, I'm getting tired. So, I mean, that doesn't explain that, that doesn't necessarily explain every reason why people get breathless. But what we started to do with kind of people with long COVID actually offer kind of breathing clinics where get groups of people with long COVID and just teach them what good breathing pattern is and what good breathing technique is. And, you know, we give them about four four kind of sessions and the, the, the feedback we're getting is really, really positive because I think part of it is, you know, just having a bit of education around what a good breath is what can I do if I start to feel a bit breathless where should I start breathing from what you know do I do I put my hands on my head do I, do I put my hands on my knees we you know everyone tells me lots of different things do I breathe from my nose do I breathe from my mouth what is it um so we're just able to kind of debunk some of those myths just go go for that but pretty much the way we teach people along COVID how to breathe properly is exactly the same way we teach the athletes how to breathe because essentially where where we breathe from is the same sort of area sort of lower lower rib cage where the, where the breath starts from and if you start to increase your activity that that place doesn't change it just means you might do a bit more forcefully but the emphasis of a good breath is the same for an elite athlete as it is for uh, you know somebody who's 75 but it's just about you know trying to educate that and and understand why a person might be developing breathlessness um and go from there really but it's it's been really you know it's been so, so some of the best things i've done recently just people have been telling me things oh you know i can I can now kind of walk around the house without spilling my cups of tea everywhere because I'm not breathless and that sort of stuff. And and that's, you know, they're, they're, they're made up because they can live a bit more of a normal life than, than what they could do uh, beforehand. So, you know, that it, that's been as good as helping someone, you know, get, get uh, you know, into the Olympic team or go, you know, go and win an Olympic medal or something. So, um, so yeah, so it's been, it's been quite valuable, really. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting. And then, so what are your thoughts on like? There's a lot of apps out there now. A lot of focus on breath work, meditation. What are your thoughts on those? Oof. Um, I mean, I think they're all good. I, mean, I think that sort of stuff is is fine if used in the right kind of way. Um, so, uh, what those sort of, sort of apps do, sort of like breathing for two, out for two, or or you know, breath holding, and they're all focused on really kind of relaxation and and things which. In, in in one area is fine, but what what I sort of more specialise in is what do we how do we breathe when we start to be bringing some activity? So when we start to when we start to move, when we start to exercise, we still you know we're going to have to start to breathe a bit deeper. We're going to start to breathe a little bit faster. How do we do that in an efficient, optimal way? So I think those all, all those kind of breathing apps are okay to to support breathing and relaxation at rest. 
but they may not be the best at actually kind of helping you sort of improve your sporting or your or breathing when you're being a bit more physically active. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Makes sense. No, no, I appreciate your time today. So like, what, what would your advice be for people trying to get into maybe not as specific as, as what you're doing, but getting into the sports science research, elite sport area? Um, well, f- f- first of all, I think I, mean, I think probably what I always say is that I've, what I've done probably over, over, over my career is I've always done things that I want, you know, basically followed my passion, if you like. So follow, follow something that I'm passionate because I think if you start doing something that you don't really love if you like you start doing things and you know you can fall out of love with it pretty quickly so don't do something just because you think that's the right thing to do do it do it because do it because you actually really want to do it so if you've got a passion for something you're more, more likely to see it through so make sure if you are thinking about you know a career in sport sports science or sport make sure you, you pick the area that you're most passionate about because you're more likely to sell it and you know and 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 go the extra mile you know putting those putting those putting that time in the evenings to, to do that sort of work um, be proactive don't be afraid of asking people questions or asking for opportunities because the worst thing someone's going to say is sorry we haven't got anything at the minute but you know if you don't ask you don't get and you know and, and like I say bit don't be scared of doing something that you have that you haven't done before for example I talked about you know I could I could have kind of applied for that PhD with the, with the British, British Olympic Association and gone don't know much about lung function you know but actually you know back yourself a little bit and go you know what I don't know much about it now but I can learn it and I think as long as you back yourself then then you know you're probably gonna you know you're probably gonna make it it's just it's just having having the time because I, I do have some 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 students we work with I offer them an opportunity and it's a great opportunity they go, I've not done that before and it's like well you, you just got you just got to jump in and uh, you know and, and you'll and you'll learn it but it's um yeah try try not to worry too much about what you haven't done to go actually I'll, you know what i don't know i'll learn and i'll try and learn it pretty quick yeah no no i think it's good advice definitely good advice i think it's like it's up to the people who are giving out whatever they're giving out to make that decision all you can do is like just put yourself in the in the uh in the hat for it so to speak but no john like really enjoyed that i've learned a lot there's been some very interesting points around uh it was well in terms of just breath like the, the water stuff i think is really interesting as well yeah actually last point on that then so in terms of like sport there's a lot of thing around drug testing now and i know yours is in a specific element of it but what are your thoughts when say boxers are one of the when i'm a big boxing fan when you see boxers come back with positive drug tests <laughs> just to finish on that yeah well i mean i, I think so what i mean tr- i try and be as positive as i can about it but sometimes the drug the drug developers if you like or the people that are designing drugs they are sometimes one step ahead of the anti-doping authorities because you kind of need to have the, the substance before you can find the find the test to test for it if you, if you like remember the the i've forgotten the name the balco scandal in america when it basically only found out that people were using this this um the drugs because the the coach kind of gave gave um the testers the, the the formula for what they should be looking for um so in some respects there are there are some some you know some high-tech cheats out there but i think on the on the whole a lot of the those kind of things that are coming up with boxing are potentially from it's just not necessarily paying close attention to kind of what the rules are and sometimes they might take a, a supplement because you know it's got the protein in or something like that and, and they don't read the finer the finer points of what, what's in that supplement and things so education is key for that key for that and it's it's, it's, it's re- i think sometimes 
that you know basically they've got like a black and white policy if it's in the athlete it's the athlete's is the athlete's fault but there's lots of people around the athlete you know if you're if you're an athlete and you've got a doctor saying well you've got allergies i'm going to get you this medication that's the best thing for your best thing for your allergies if you're the athlete you're relying on that doctor to basically be the the expert and tell you and you're you're kind of going because you don't you know you've got this long you've got this drug that's real long word and you're going well if you as long as you say it's all right for me to take doc i'll, I'll trust you and i think sometimes you know athletes do put themselves in the trust of the coach the medical team physios and, and practitioners like me and sometimes um you know i don't know sometimes i think the the the, the balance between when it's our when where's it where's it our case as practitioners to be interested in the health of the athlete but there's also a big carry if that athlete performs really well suddenly i'm the practitioner and the, and the medic that's worked with that doctor that worked with that athlete so therefore i'm going to get propelled and i'm going to get i'm going to basically be you know a bit of a star if you like so you know, there is that temptation from not just the athlete but from the team around that to actually go well actually if we can manipulate the rules a little bit we might be able to to to, to, to help it and it it's a real you know you hate to think like that but ultimately you sort of say actually there's a temptation there so um maybe 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 some of them have done that but i think a lot of the time a lot of the athletes um you know it's i'm probably being being nice to them but saying actually sometimes i think they might take something like it's more more like a supplement rather than actually what they've eaten and it might be more of a supplement issue that's a little little product in the supplement that they haven't necessarily realized is a banned sub substance and that's what's kind of ticking them over so there's all sorts of reasons why sort of these doping violations take place and, and also the, the 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 rules change year on year so the athletes have got to stay over it's quite a big quite a big bit of work and if you know boxers generally tend to work in isolation they tend to work in their little little bubbles they're not like a football club that's got a big medic medical team so um but ultimately they've got to live by the same rules as all these big sports do so it's not it's not easy um but i say with 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 the asthma side of things from my experience um it, it, as long as the athletes using what should be prescribed as, as asthma therapy, they they you know basically they're just protecting their lung health, and there is no performance in that in enhancement from from doing that. So, um, and then obviously different drugs do different things. So um, you're sort of looking at the drug that's being used as well when you kind of go up. You know, have have you got have you got that problem, or have you you know? Because I think there's a big big issue with a a drug that dealt dealt with sort of heart failure that a lot of tennis players were using um like a while ago <laughs> and then suddenly you got banned in like oh I'm, i don't have that problem anymore so i'll stop using it sort of thing and you're like mm. <laughs> you know maybe they were just abusing the rules and going oh that that drug might help me do that sort of thing and it's allowed to be taken so i'll do that and uh and now i can't take it so i won't uh, no that problem that, that problem doesn't exist anymore sort of thing so yeah, it does sound really like minefield for trying to keep on top of it but fortunately i don't have to worry about it it's just a shame when these fights get called off but I yeah. guess they've got to they've got to have the rules for it. But no, John, look, thank you for staying on. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I'll uh, look forward to catching up soon. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, John.